0: Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness as the term is used in conversations around race and racism, and as it pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by Professor Barnor Hesse, Associate Professor of African American Studies, Political Science, and Sociology at Northwestern University in the United States, and a man who's found himself at the center of the so called culture wars happening both here in the UK and also, of course, in the US. Professor Hesse teaches African American studies, specializing in critical race studies and black political thought. And since a list of eight identities that he devised became headline news several weeks ago, Professor Hesse has been subjected to a campaign of intimidation and hate, which has included threats against his life. Today, he's joining us to tell us how he's ended up at the center of one of these so called culture wars. Welcome Professor Hesse. thank you for joining us today. How are you doing in the midst of all of this?
1: I'm doing as well as I can expect in the midst of a, of a culture war and constant racist abuse, just hoping and, and waiting for it to play out and, and, and to calm down.
0: So for people who don't know um, exactly how this has all unfolded, um, would you mind telling us in your own words Um, how this has all come about. How have you ended up having to speak to the FBI about your safety and security?
1: Well, it's a very interesting origin story uh, against that is the background for what has become known as the eight white identities. Uh, Several years ago in 2013, uh, in a class that I was teaching that examined the interconnections between Uh, race and whiteness in the in the very last uh, sort of class of the course I Gave a lecture that I called the eight white identities because I really wanted to convey the idea that when we're talking about white identity, it's not simply a monolith in which there's only one way in which people can identify as white so I indicated eight different kinds of white identity in relation to racism and anti-racism, in which white individuals could mobilize depending on whether or not they were endorsing racism or challenging racism. And of these eight white identities, three of them were basically associated with uh, endorsing racism, and five were basically associated with challenging and opposing racism. So I taught that class in 2013. There was a student in that class who was really inspired by the list. I call it a heuristic, which really means a teaching device. And that student placed the eight white identities online without my consent. And the first time... I'm
0: sorry. No, sorry. I was saying yes, that's that's uh, that's unfortunate. So it, w- it started from a good place. It started from a good intention from the sounds of it.
1: Well, it started from a good intention, but I'd never intended for it to be online. So yes. basically since 2013, it's been circulating online. I've been getting lots of comments, lots of emails from people in the UK, across the US and Australia and Canada commending me on it and talking about it and saying how useful it is, until this year in February, a school in New York picked up the eight white identities, the principal of the school, sent it to the parents of the school children, and all hell broke loose in right-wing media and conservative social media, and since then, I became the focus of the tax. I never intended for this to go online, and certainly not in the form of a student's lecture notes, but there you go, and, and this is where we are.
0: And this is how you ended up being a subject of conversation on the Bill Maher show and Fox News and um, and the kind of snowball effect that has come from there. Um, if we can just take a, a step back, um, I'd be really interested to hear about the, the heuristic and how that came about. Um, how, how did you devise the heuristic?
1: Well, it was, a, it was a matter of looking at the kinds of, you know, research, analysis, writing that's been done on whiteness in critical race studies and whiteness studies over the last 30 years. And you began to see that, you know, there were some categories that were already in place, like the category of white supremacy was in place as an identity, white privilege, the category of white trader, which is all about breaking ranks with white people who don't want to talk about racism, or, and the category of white abolitionism, which was going right back to the days of slavery abolitionists, you know, those identities that wanted to dismantle, uh, you know, Uh, white supremacy. So all I did was to add to those categories other things that were in the literature. You know, I spoke of white voyeurism. This is the identity of that white people adopt when they're intensely uh, interested in the black experience in a culturally pleasurable way, but not in a politically challenging way against racism. And then there were other categories like white Uh, benefit and white confessional all of these things can be seen very easily on the internet so I was simply bringing together in one place much of the discussion in the existing academic literature
0: And, and what were you hoping that students would do with the list
1: well I think it would enable them to recognize that when we say things like white identity there are nuances here and there are different kinds of orientation and you can see historically how at different times and in different ways, uh, white identity can be mobilized uh, against racism and in support of racism. So you begin to see the kinds of complexities that make up a white experience in relation to racism
0: and anti-racism. And and out of interest, so the students that were taking this class, was this a, a critical race um, studies class? Um, Yes, that it,
1: it, yes. It, it, was. it was. The name of the class was called Unsettling Whiteness. So it's basically, you know, how do you get to recognize something called whiteness? You know, how do you get to recognize, for example, if you go to see 10 movies in succession and those movies only feature white people, how do you get to recognize that that's been constructed as normal and as something that excludes race when really if you can get simply and only white people on the screen, that's involving a lot of racial exclusions.
0: Mm. And, and I'm wondering, um, by the sounds of it, the reception um, of this particular heuristic in class wasn't particularly controversial from, from what you have mentioned so far. How, I mean, how was it received by the students at the time?
1: Well, it was received as empowering just in the same way as it was received as empowering online since 2013 you know I've yeah had, you know lawyers i've had artists community organizers in different countries all using it in their teaching and their training and thanking me for the insights and the empowering understandings that they can develop from those insights
0: so do you think there's something different about the climate right now which means that it was received differently or do you think it's been seized upon opportunistically or how do you interpret what's happened?
1: Well I think we need to to, to think about the difficulty in societies that have been historically premised on uh, sort of colonialism and the institution of racial slavery, which you know are the, the, the bedrock of assembling uh, societies that always seem to be naturally under the jurisdiction of white populations. It's very rare for, in those societies, white populations and the institutions that have been built to support white populations, it's very rare for them to become the focus of any kind of analysis Or any kind of challenge or any kind of profile in the mainstream of that society. There's always been a very hostile reaction to naming these things. And I think what's happened recently, particularly in the US, is that there's, you know, over the last 15 years, possibly 20 years or so, there's the emergence of a deep white racial anxiety about what's happening to the nation. I mean, on the one hand, that's part of reacting to the demographic shifts and changes in the size of the white population, which, you know, in 1980 was about, uh, you know, virtually 89% of the population were white people. By the time we get into 2021, it's dropping into, you know, the late 60 percentage So there is this sense that the white majority and the white way of life is no longer going to be the dominant framing of the nation. And you see those anxieties emerging where, you know, black people and brown people in various spaces are being challenged for being in those spaces. You know, sometimes it's driving while being black, it's barbecuing while being black, it's being black and going to a hotel, these are all sort of micro ways of trying to reassert some control or some dominance of spaces that are regarded as you know, under the jurisdiction of whiteness. Mm. So when you put that into place and you also begin to see something else that is happening, which it, to me is you know, very critical to this experience and it comes out of Black Lives Matter, you see a split beginning to take place in the white population and the white constituency. It's no longer the case that a white community can be mobilized as one monolithic force to uphold a a kind of set of racist institutions. What you're finding is a split among whiteness that those who want to reassert white dominance and white authority can no longer count on all of that white constituency to support that. So when you look at Black Lives Matter, for example, which is very contested in the US and very contested in the UK, you see an unprecedented number of white people participating in Black Lives Matter, such that you can get in places like Oregon, which is the whitest state in the US, Black Lives Matter protests being mobilized in predominantly white communities. So when you take together the demographic decline in the white population that's being anticipated and the split in white identifications between those who want to move in an anti-racist direction and those who want to stay in some kind of racist, dominated, uh, white control direction, that is the source of a profound white anxiety.
0: Mm, And and I guess, I mean, I wanna um, try and understand the uh, the the relationship between those, I mean, you've obviously listed eight um, uh, I guess could you call them archetypal identities. Um, and I'm just wondering to what extent um these are an important reference point in. Um, moving past some of the binaries of these conversations. But before I do that, I feel that we probably need to define whiteness, um, given, given the nature of the podcast and obviously the nature of the conversation. Um, what, how do you define whiteness?
1: Well, this is one of those areas that usually gets uh, a lot of people into turmoil. I mean, the first thing to say about the idea of whiteness, is that it's not referring to people's skin color. I mean, after all, the people who are generally known as white are not actually white in terms of the color white. What it's actually referring to is the way in which, over the last 300 years, the people who came to call themselves white, you know, European Christians coming into the Americas and establishing new societies, set up institutions and relationships, economically and culturally, which they defined as based on white domination. So when we're getting into the idea of what whiteness is, it's referring to the ways in which our society, on the one hand, assumes the points of view of white populations as being primary. And then on the other hand, assures, ensures that that society is based on the histories and the experiences and the perspectives and the values preferred by the white population in how things are run. So let me just give you an example. You know, up until 50 or 60 years ago, none of this is controversial. But at the beginning of the 20th century, you would find in, uh, you know, nations like the US, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, um, referring to themselves as white men's countries. This was Mm -hmm. uncontroversial. It was just understood as how things were. But what did that mean specifically? Well, it meant that in opposition to a lot of emergent immigration, particularly coming from Asia, this was the idea mobilized from political elites to trade unions, that democracy was A political form that represented and could only represent white interests. It could not be multiracial. Democracy could only be white. So you see, those ideas were deeply embedded into our Western way of life. It's just that in the last 50 or 60 years, nobody speaks explicitly in those terms. That the practices and the institutions and the ways of living. That govern our lives still represent that historical legacy.
0: So it's interesting to hear you, um, talk about that because I wasn't actually even aware of the the use of the term, um, you know, white countries um, in reference mm-hmm. to to those um, to those specific countries. But I'm curious to know whether the anxiety, white anxiety, as regards shift in uh, so far, we've talked about demographic shifts, but ultimately, are we talking about shifts in power relations? Is that what the root of what is it? The root of the white anxiety? Is it a um, because I, I guess I'm I'm assuming, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, but the the the, the fear, the anxiety, the white anxiety that um, we're seeing in in the midst of these culture wars isn't really about um, Um, people marrying people of different backgrounds it's about something more profound than that or do you think that's also do you think there's an attachment to a sort of almost Aryan sense of racial purity
1: okay well I think we need to separate out the sociological trend of white anxiety which is what I'm trying to to get at when I use that term Mm-hmm. and the more sort of superficial and um, incendiary culture wars that you've mentioned. I can comment on those two things. So let me separate them out and then bring them together. Please so do, I, yeah. I, I, I earlier mentioned, you know, the way in which beginning of the 20th century, s- certain societies understood themselves as white men's countries. Okay. Well, What that meant was that the administration, the social composition of these societies, the cultural leadership of these societies, and the history that these societies draw upon were expected to represent white interests, white desires, and so on. And you mm-hmm. see that a lot of that representation in a lot of movies that are made throughout the 20th century right into the 1960s. But the demographic and the sociological basis of white anxiety initially begins with an anxiety around immigration, non-white immigration. In the history of you know, the, you know, the modern West, immigration controls begin with focusing on controlling the movements of non-white populations. That's its initial rationale. So the anxiety is initially around uh, non-whites uh, taking our jobs, living near us, uh, trying to make uh, have access to to welfare, uh, questions around sex and sexuality, intermarriage and so on with white people. All of these are seen as, throughout the 20th century, ways in which the status of being white is being corroded by some kind of intermixture with non-whites, particularly black people. You see that when black Mm. politics and issues are raised, how dare these issues contaminate what we understand as politics. But up until the last sort of 20 years, maybe 30 years, you know, this was sort of seen as manageable there was a sort of an agreement amongst you know the us governments and uk governments that we could settle all of these kinds of issues keep them contained within this framework you know of race relations which basically is another way in which whiteness exerts itself how can we you know uh, manage non-white populations in a manner that makes us still comfortable with the continuance of white domination. Hmm. But the demographic changes, the changes through immigration have created and produced new tensions and demands in these societies. In the US it's been a long-term generational series of demands through black political mobilizations making more and more entries into the polity in the the UK, uh, shorter history, but a similar model. Mm -hmm. So what we're beginning to see now, which is very different at, at at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, is that the institution of white identity is no longer all in the same place. So if you look at, there's a split in white identity. So if you look at this idea of white genocide, for example, it's currently being mobilized by white nationalists in Europe yes, and in the in U.S. Europe,
0: yeah, this, in Europe, it's a yeah, big trend, yeah.
1: This is the idea that, you know, institutions and political elites are deliberately trying to ethnically cleanse the nations of white people. Mm-hmm. Now, who are they complaining about and to? Well, they're complaining to other white people. These elites that they charge with white genocide are white elites. So that kind of configuration politically hasn't been here before. This is a very Mm. different place and it's a very different basis for acute experiences of white anxiety.
0: Oh, well, I'm gonna have to bring in, forgive me for the listeners who are bored of the topic, but Harry and Meghan on this occasion Because I'm just wondering whether um, what you describe can be applied to some of the reactions that we have heard, allegations at this stage, um, uh, of um, anxieties within the palace um, over demographic changes to the makeup of the royal family. Um, And what you make of those anxieties, is it the case, do you think, that um, and this is, this is my intuitive sense that that fully accepting, you know the, the, the Duchess and, and her child would invoke um, a and it would imply the equality of all members of the family. And with that implication of equality, that would imply an extension of that equality to all peoples. Um, but that the royal family relies on a hierarchy of human value both in a class and a racial sense particularly in the commonwealth um, and so yes can you can you bring us some light into this issue i mean what's your take on on the whole harry and meghan versus the palace debate
1: well uh, not having anticipated we would take this detour
0: <laughs> yes into so, the i didn't
1: sixth sitcom Land of Harry and Meghan, which I'm looking forward to on Netflix when it comes out. Um, Yes, no doubt. You know, the thing about the monarchy and race is it takes us back to these these questions of anxiety that, that I pointed out. Because if one wanted to say, what is the last bastion of the dominance of white institutions and the dominance of white authority in the organization of a nation around the point of view of its white citizens in the primary instance. Well, the last bastion is whiteness being able to occupy the ground of what is universal and what is normal mm-hmm. without that being seen to be in question by the history of whiteness in the past. So Mm. what do I mean by that? Well, the royal family and royalty in the British monarchy, for the greater part of its modern experience, was always the epitome of the colonial experience. It exercised sovereignty uh, as a constitutional monarchy over empire. An empire meant that the populations of empire were organized as a racial hierarchy in which whiteness and every single white individual experienced a sovereignty, a authority over non-white populations. Now that was the world in which the, the, the modern constitutional monarchy Uh, emerged and developed itself and understood itself. It was the aristocracy of whiteness. And it was universal rule. Mm. The difficulty once you begin to bring in any non-white experience, any black experience, you begin to question the universal basis of rule and authority usually associated by whiteness with whiteness. Because generally, when we're thinking about things like the monarchy or democracy mm. or liberalism, all of these things are always stated as if they had no connection with colonialism and racism and white supremacy. But mm-hmm. if you look at the history of these things, you realize that from the, you know, the colonization of the Americas, Liberalism was always articulated through colonialism. Democracy was always articulated through white supremacy. The monarchy was always articulated through both. So there's a struggle going on to preserve the ability to talk about the monarchy without reference to race. And if you can talk about the monarchy without reference to race, you don't have to think in a more complicated way about British history. Let me. Can I just give you one example?
0: Please do, yeah. The,
1: the, the monarchy is a very good example uh, on its own, but I think the example I want to give you is, is a better one. So at stake is not wanting to bring up a more complicated history. Take World War II. Now, World War II frames the British monarchy in a very particular way, of course. You know, the, the monarchy is, is the sort of, the, 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 the symbol to the British people to stand firm and, and so on. So is Winston Churchill. But the narrative of World War II is always given to us as a narrative in which the British and the Americans fight against fascism for democracy. And that is a universal claim everyone can get around and one can keep that universal even though it's a white claim because once you begin to embed it in its history, a couple of things take place. Firstly, you see that Nazi Germany, in terms of mobilizing its Nazism, was actually mobilizing a form of white supremacy. That's what Aryanism was. Now, in challenging Nazism and white supremacy, Britain and the US were sitting on political formations based on white supremacy, Empire and Jim Crow. So World War II in a way was once white supremacy challenging another white supremacy. Mm. But take another example of that. Every movie we've ever seen about World War II features white American soldiers, white British soldiers as if it was simply two nations and, you know, and, and the rest of the allies, European Western nations, going to war. But the British mobilized millions of black and brown regiments from its empire mm-hmm. who fought in these wars. The US mobilized millions of African American soldiers in segregated troops who fought in these wars, all of which is airbrushed out of this universal idea that the Western allies stood for democracy, but it wasn't standing for democracy for African-Americans in the US, and it wasn't standing for democracy for Africans and, and, and Asians in the British Empire who had no democracy. Mm. So once you begin to insert a black experience into these universal icons of whiteness, You have to come to terms with a more complicated, deeply layered, colonial and racial history that's traditionally denied and silenced.
0: Mm, And it it sounds like the moral authority of the monarchy, which in this country, I mean, as I stand, you know, stand here in the UK saying this is, is virtually unchallenged, that once, anyone can lay the question of racism at the door of the monarchy, it really shatters the um, kind of the illusion or the bubble of being beyond reproach, which has allowed them to maintain this almost unquestioned position, um, which I think for anyone that lives outside the UK might seem strange, but is very much the case, right, that the, the royal family stands above debate, they stand above Um, reproach. I mean, we saw obviously with the Prince Andrew um, and and allegations of of child uh, sexual exploitation um, that that even that's not enough um, to cause a major scandal for the palace. Um, So I'm going to bring us back, if you don't mind, just a step um, to uh, the uh, cultural wars in America and, and, and how they've sort of now found their way actually across the world. Um I know that in September, obviously last year, former President Trump had issued an executive order banning federal contractors from conducting racial sensitivity training, and he emphasized his desire to, I quote, stop efforts to indoctrinate government employees with divisive and harmful sex and race-based ideologies. Now, many people read into this that you know, a very clear um, critique of uh, critical race theory. Um, and that has since come under attack here in the UK, in France. As someone who teaches it, and obviously as someone who's in, in the US, why do you think that critical race theory is causing such a stir, and why now?
1: Well, I think it's, uh, you know, if it wasn't critical race theory, then it was affirmative action, or it was equal opportunity, or it was anti-racism or it was immigration, or it was Black Lives Matter. So all of these things that I've just mentioned are are symptomatic of what happens when a diverse and multicultural society, which is developing in the context of a continuing structural racism and white supremacy, begins to experience itself Uh, facing demands from populations that simply won't assimilate to diversity without tackling structural racism. So critical race theory, this is something that begins to emerge over the last uh, 20 years, 30 years, coming out principally from, you know, black studies, um, post-colonial studies, feminist studies. It begins to emerge as a way in which people who are not simply uh, content with being assimilated to being administered by white populations are actually using their own experiences in education to question and understand history. Now, if you have a history that can tell you the history of the modern nation over the last 500 years, without telling you anything about how the question of race and colonialism was supremely dominant in shaping that history in the last 500 years, but then expects you to somehow live with and address issues of race as if they didn't have 500 years' gestation, well, as a reaction to that, you get critical race theory. And critical race theory, basically, as far as I can see, simply tries to explain how and why it is that liberalism and democracy was always entangled with colonialism and white supremacy in the lives, particularly in the US, of black populations and indigenous populations, in the lives, particularly in the UK, of black populations and Asian populations, and how that entanglement continues to unravel in our lives, right? So, you know, if you have just one example, I mean, one of the things that we should know is that if you look at the history of immigration, I think I've mentioned this already, Mm -hmm. the history of immigration and immigration control began with political decisions As to how to manage the movement of non-white populations into Western countries. And Western countries had had a lot of control over the last 300 years of actually deciding how and when they would move populations from country to country, slavery, was a good example of Europeans moving Africans into the Americas. You had uh, Indians being moved from India by the British into parts of Africa, East Africa, and into the Caribbean. So this idea that immigration is simply a normal uh, mode of trying to control borders only looks normal if you completely ignore that colonial and racial history. So critical race theory gets us to look at how the colonial aspects and racial aspects inform the history that we take as normal. And if you have a deep investment in a normal history, which suggests that you know the reason that white people have dominated the world through white institutions or white identities is just normal, then clearly you'll have a deep anxiety if you realize that that was created, manufactured, curated through colonialism and white supremacy.
0: Do you think that some of that anxiety is what has fueled support for Trump? Was it that anxiety that that led to the riots on Capitol Hill? Um, or, or what else do you see at play there?
1: Well, I think, you know, the, the whole thrust of what I'm saying is that, yes, this has fueled that white anxiety. You know, not all white communities have responded with that kind of white anxiety. You know, other aspects, other dimensions of white community responded with uh, an investment in changing and challenging that kind of structural past, that structural racism, or that structural uh, white supremacy. But where there's a, a comfort in trying to hold on to the legacies of the past, you know, often takes the form of, we want our country back. Um, what you find is the, you uh, a sort of greater attachment to moments of confrontation that get you to express this anxiety. And this is where we come into the so-called culture wars. right? So the culture wars are those sort of areas of antagonism in culture, which are mobilized as deep antagonisms, as attacks on the country, Uh, by right-wing and conservative and white nationalist forces. And what it's actually saying is that, you know, this country was okay socially and culturally before they started to encroach upon it with these new ideas, with these different ideas. And you find that when you see phrases that say things like, you know, make America great again. Make America great again is a standard bearer for the culture war. If you ask the question, well, when was America great? Well, the earliest date you could possibly go back to is the 1950s. Now, black people can't go back to the 1950s and say America was great then. Women generally can't go back to the 1950s and say America was great then because what you find in the 1950s is a very normalized and unquestioned white patriarchy that more or less is the moral center and the political authority and the cultural direction of the nation. Now, when new kinds of identities and liberties and values begin to emerge, the question then is, can you simply assert a old white patriarchy as the moral and political center of the nation Without some tension. What the culture wars are suggesting is that the old certainties of a white patriarchal moral and political center were always the normal virtues of the society. And if you invest in the normal virtues of society, everything else is political correctness, is, you know, uh, critical race theory gone wild, is feminism going overboard. It's the last gasp of a set of ideas and a generational politics that's trying to hold on to a past that's being displaced in the present.
0: Mm. And do you think that that path will, I mean, obviously the displacement is happening, um, and uh, is, is leading to these these moments of conflict, um, which we're calling the culture wars. Do you think it's going to be, there will be a time in the future where we will get past the culture wars? That we will be able to have these conversations in a way that allows um, them to, to be heard without them being uh, so... I guess I was going to use the word existential but I think for the people who are trying to hold on to the old order they actually are existential right they're trying to hold on to uh, a meaning that they've attributed to the world to their lives um, which is being left behind because they have to recognize new realities Um, can we move past culture wars or do you think they will be a defining point I mean some people are, are sort of saying that this could move towards serious conflict in the future. How do you see it panning out?
1: Well, I, I don't have that kind of uh, long sight uh, about the future. You know, one can get past anything. Everything is something that we can get past. As to what that looks like, I don't know. But I should say, you know, I don't think we should give too much credibility to the idea of the culture wars, because this is really an ideological description that, uh, right wing conservative white nationalist forces, uh, project onto our experience as if there is a deeply seated culture war going on. Generally there isn't generally what we're finding is that it's a rallying cry around which to mobilize people affectively and emotionally for other kinds of struggles. you know. So if you take something like critical race theory, and you say that that is the site of a culture war, one of the racist hate mail uh, uh, emails that I got, um, I actually had some correspondence with this person. And I asked him, why am I getting so much hostility? Mm. And this person replied and said to me, well, um, a lot of us feel that the uh, ideas of critical race theory are like Jim Crow laws for white people. Mm. Now, think about that. Critical race theory is like Jim Crow laws for, race, for white people. Jim Crow, if we know anything about it, mm. uh, ensured that uh, black populations and white populations in the South uh, were separate and unequal. Unequal yeah. in terms of resources for housing, resources for education. Unequal in terms of black people, although citizens would be violently intimidated against voting would be required to exhibit obedience to any white individual who would call a black adult boy or girl, could be lynched for stepping out of line when stepping out of line meant refusing to be subordinate to white people. Critical race theory is an academic uh, intervention into how do we understand society and how do we understand history. There's Mm -hmm. no relationship to Jim Crow, but it's being mobilized as such in order to create this emotional reaction against demographic and political changes in the society. So the culture wars are an ideological mystification of what's going on in terms of social change, trying to demonize what's going on as social change in order to hold on to the vestiges and the residues and the legacies of white supremacy,
0: who who's pushing that particular um, ideological worldview? Um, and, and and would you say that the wider um, populations are being instrumentalized to further that agenda? Because for someone to say to you that they think critical race theory is like Jim Crow suggests that they are um, experiencing fear because Jim Crow is a terrifying um, prospect for um, any, I mean, mean the the fact that it even happened is is a terrifying reminder of how badly humans can treat one another. So it's, in that sense, is, is fear being instrumentalized in this conversation?
1: Well, fear has always been instrumentalized uh, in relation to black populations and brown populations. You know, during the era of slavery, fear was instrumentalized into the administrators of slavery in Brazil, in you know, the United States, in Jamaica. That the black population was savage, could uh, emerge warlike and unruly at any moment, right? So, the idea that a presence of non-whiteness under our control, under our administration, was not always going to be a comfortable experience, was always administered as a law and order experience... In order to keep them in place, you have to create this idea of fear. What will happen to us as white citizens, as white colonial administrators, as white slave masters, if these people ever uh, manage to escape our control? So the relationship between uh, race, black populations, brown populations, and the control of Western nation states, white trade unionists, white political elites and the fear of the other has a long, seamless history. So Mm -hmm. in different situations, the object of fear and the representation of the fear will shift and it will change. But what that fear is telling you is something about an anxiety to do with the subversion of white authority over these populations. There's an assumption always been an assumption that non-white populations ought to be governed by the ideas of white populations. And when that begins to be questioned, part of the fear that results is a questioning of whether these populations are going to do to us what we did to them. That's Mm. where you get this reach for this spurious idea of a Jim Crow law applied to white populations.
0: What would you define as the function of racism?
1: Well, I wouldn't describe uh, racism as having a function. Okay. I would say racism has a constitution. So often when we try to understand things, we have to understand how and why things emerged in the way that they did and became a part of people's normal existence, with some people understanding some of what's going on, other people not interested, and and other people half understanding and half not interested, right? So what we find is that very clearly, when I say it has a constitution, that when European nations begin to colonize the world and begin to invest in the resources of other parts of the world, you know, minerals, land, people as, you know, items of their control and items of their exploitation, then the societies that begin to be set up through empires in the Americas and empires across the world later on are constituted, which is to say only possible if non-white populations become the populations that serve the white rulers, the white governing class, and so on. And that constitution, that unwritten, if you like, constitution of colonial control and racial exploitation simply becomes the way things are. And the way things are is unchallenged. Some of it emerges through being planned, some of it emerges through accident, through new forms of creativity, but it emerges as the way things are. The colonial domination of the world, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century by white populations was the way things are, right? Mm, mm. And so what we have to understand is how it becomes normalized as the way things are and what that serves in terms of people's motivations, their identifications, and so on. You know, if I was going to use the way the word function, I would say racism serves the function of keeping things the way that they are.
0: Mm. Yeah, I was thinking of the, um, the Tony Morrison quote, right, the, um, the function of racism is distraction, um, which is something I've, I've thought a lot about. Um, but I was also thinking about the ways in which Um, You know, some scholars that I've uh, read have talked about um, racism essentially operating like a sort of lubricant for um, the development of capitalism and capitalism being an inherently unequal uh, economic system that it required an ideological uh, tool or an, I'm going to use the word lubricant, an ideological lubricant to justify it um it, it, it so would that be different to how you would think of it
1: well slightly different i mean yeah you know um it, it's whether or not you want to see racism uh solely or exclusively as a series of ideas and ide- ideologies that have to be brought in to do something to people's material realities i tend to see what mm-hmm. we call racism as actually uh, constituting or making palpable or explicit those material realities. So, you know, if you take something like capitalism and slavery, if we're in the 17th century, uh, nobody in Britain, France, uh, the Netherlands, uh, Spain, Portugal has to justify slavery to anybody by that time in the 17th 18th century you have you know the categorizations of negroes and indians being you know uh, manufactured mm. we we have in effect what you would call you know racism and slavery and colonial settler society nobody has to justify that to anybody power does not need to justify itself
0: right mm, okay so
1: you then have to ask the question why does justification Come in. Now, one of the ways justification as an idea comes in, if you want to retain that idea is, well, when these power arrangements are being challenged and contested, then if you have to explain it to people whom you regard as people that require an explanation, you might search for a justification So if we go into the 18th century, into the 19th century, you'll see that some of the white abolitionists that began to critique slavery, found themselves coming up against defenders of slavery who would give them justifications. Mm. But it was justifications among equals. They didn't have to justify racism to the black and brown populations who were subjugated by racism. Because by definition, they are inferior and outside of the constituency to whom you'd want to justify yourself.
0: Mm. Thank you for clarifying that. That's that's a really helpful uh, way of thinking of it. Uh, that's d- definitely for me a, a, new, a new way of thinking about it. Um, I, I want to bring us back to the modern time before we kind of wrap up, which is, The the George Floyd trial is just getting underway in America this week. Um, For many people, this will be regarded as a historic trial. Um, Do you believe that it will bring about meaningful change? Um, And what what are your hopes um, of what will emerge from this?
1: Well, I don't think any single uh, legal trial, um, brings about meaningful change. I think, you know, meaningful change happens through social change and social transformation, which involves a number of different legal, cultural, political dimensions beginning to mesh and to be, and beginning to, you know, you know, create the kinds of confrontations that can no longer be avoided on, you know, the big issues of the day. So, What my hope is, my hope would be that justice would be done and be seen to be done and the murderer of George Floyd would be uh, convicted and found guilty and so on. What my fear is, is that that may not necessarily happen. It's never been the case that justice has been done when Mm -hmm. black people have been killed by the police. And even if justice is done in this particular case, it's a kind of Pyrrhic justice insofar as the conditions that create the possibilities of black people continually being killed by the police, let down by the police, over-policed by the police, those conditions are still in place. Mm. So nothing can bring back George Floyd that is a, a, a stain, if you like, on the American polity that can never be erased. Nothing can bring back Breonna Taylor. That's another stain that can never be erased. Yeah. These particular sort of instances of a legal spectacle of justice are not about political transformation. They're about momentary possibilities of giving some relief to some individuals, but it's never the end of the story.
0: Well, thank you um, for giving us uh, your perspective on that. Um, I usually end the episodes with a quick fire round um, in which I have um, just very short questions and um, briefish answers on your part if you're able to. Um, What is the root of racism?
1: The root of racism is the colonial creation of white supremacy in the modern world.
0: Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is the universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable?
1: There is a, well, the post-racial ideal is a product of a white liberal imagination that wants to Uh, live with diversity outside of addressing structural racism and the idea of a universal it seems to me is always an ideal that's created by the people that construct the possibilities of a universal vision rather than philosophers who pontificate about it.
0: Is uh, whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism?
1: Absolutely, because it describes, you know, the law and order of Western societies that work through race. And that tells us why some people are racially profiled, but not others. Some people are campaigning for racial equality, but not others. Some people campaign against racial injustice, but not others. So whiteness describes the regime that keeps those kinds of issues in place.
0: Great, thank you so much for uh, your time and for sharing your thoughts with us. Um, For people who would like to buy your books, who'd like to read more about your work, is there a particular place that you'd like to direct them to?
1: Yeah, I think it's that interesting invention called the internet. (laughs) Just google me and uh, all will be revealed.
0: Sure, no problem. Any booksellers of preference or um, just any, any old?
1: That's fine. I'm, I'm on the internet. So, um, you know, whatever people. you can
0: find. Yes. Um, no worries. All right. Well, thank you, Professor Hesse. I appreciate your time. Thank you uh, to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Um, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness.